Well, the past couple of weeks here at St. Mark, we have been in this sermon series called The Bible Abridged. And the goal that we've kind of set out for ourselves in the middle of this series is kind of a lofty one. It's to go through the entire story of the Bible, like cover to cover, uh, Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament and New Testament. We want to go through this entire story of Scripture in just five weeks. Bit of a lofty task, and there's kind of of some consequences that come along with reading the Bible this way. We're going to miss some of the details here and there. Right, we're not trying to get into the details or into the weeds of every single story, but there's a couple of stories that we've selected from different parts of the scripture that we think kind of just demonstrate the themes that God has shown to us, namely his faithfulness, his goodness, and that he keeps his promises to us. We have been trying to go through this story cover to cover, and that's a big goal. But I think even a a bigger goal for us in this series is, is not just to go through this story, but to actually find a way inside of this story for ourselves. We want to find a way to place ourselves inside of God's story as as kind of just readers of his scripture and and ask the honest question, how is it that we fit in on all of this? How is it that us and our story fit into God's larger story that he tells us in his scriptures? Because here's the kind of reason behind that is, is depending on whether or not we place ourselves inside the story, And further than that, how we choose to place ourselves inside of this story will really determine for us what we uh, get out of this story, right? Because you can choose whether or not to place yourself inside the story when you read it. And a lot of people, when they read the Bible, they choose to just keep the story at an arm's length, right? They'll read the Bible kind of as a a history book. They'll they'll read the Bible kind of as a series of of good moral fables, a series of, you know, just kind of good sayings and advice for us. But But if you read the Bible that way and you don't put yourself into it, you're not going to get much out of it. You can learn something about history. You can learn something about what the scripture says, but you really, at the end of the day, you won't learn anything about you. But what we believe as Christians is that when we place ourselves inside of this text, and this is what we try to do in worship every single Sunday, when we, when we place ourselves inside of this text, ask the question, where do we all fit? Then the story, it actually kind of reads us. The story begins to tell us something about ourselves, tell us something about our our human nature, how we interact with the world, and and there's a way to place ourselves inside this story faithfully. Now, to be fair, there are also a couple of ways, some dangerous ways to place ourselves inside the story, a couple of unfaithful, really just theologically incorrect ways to place ourselves inside the story, and, and here's just a couple of them. When we place ourselves inside of God's story, we never want to pretend or feign, even for a moment, that we are the hero or the main character. We are not the hero of God's story. We are not the hero of the story that Scripture tells. We are just kind of, well, not that. Jesus is the only hero in God's story. God's story has room for one main character, one hero, and it is him. Jesus is the only one who lived his life perfectly, the only one who has the power to save anybody. That's just not a power that you and I possess. We're not the hero or the main character in this story, but we're also, this is going to sound strange at first, we're not the victims in this story. And here's why I say that. The the, kind of the world around us today, and and this has kind of infiltrated the church even as well, we've kind of developed a lot of stories, a lot of narratives where all of us, we want to play the victim in one way or another. And and I think the way the church tends to play the victim is that when we read the story of the scriptures, we we turn it into a story of of conflict between us, the church, God's faithful people, and the world, all of those unfaithful people outside the church, right? But the story that the scriptures tell us truly is, is that's not where the conflict is. 
The conflict of the story, Old Testament and New Testament, it's not us versus the world, nor is it us versus the culture. It's actually us, really even against ourselves. We're not the heroes or the victims in the story. Oftentimes, we're the villains in this story because we have this thing in our heart called sin. This thing called sin that kind of caves us in on ourselves and makes us selfish. And the consequences of that sin is conflict. We have conflict with God because we've broken his will, broken his law. We have conflict with with other people because of our selfishness and theirs. We kind of butt heads a lot. And we also have conflict even inside of ourselves. We call that guilt. We call that shame where we do the things that we don't want to do and we know they're not good for us, but we still do them anyway. And it's just all this conflict because of this sin inside of us. We're not the heroes of the story. We're not the victims of the story. More often than not, we're the villains of the story, but we're not just the villains, and not in the typical sense. Because if we were just villains in this story, then here's the way this story should end, right? It's the hero squaring off with the villain, right? The good guy, Jesus, puts an end to the bad guy, all of us, through a series of anger and wrath or judgment or something along those lines. But that's not how this story ends, The story of this end has this beautiful twist in it where the hero actually gives himself for the villain, actually lays down his life, sacrifices it on a cross of all things so that the villains could actually have life. And so we're not just the villains in this story, but because of God's grace, because of God's love for us, what we really discover, what the scriptures really tell us about ourselves at the end of the day is that we are beggars in this story. We are the people who need God's grace, the people who need God's love and God's faithfulness to to solve the conflict in our hearts, to solve the conflict that we have with everybody else, and, and to bring us into his family. We need a faithful God, and we are beggars, beggars on our own. And in our story for this morning, our text for this morning, we're going to peek into the life of another beggar. His name is Jeremiah. And we're going to kind of peek in on his life while he's in the midst of begging God, uh, begging to see a glimpse of God's goodness, begging to see light in the midst of darkness because he is just kind of going through it, right? And we're going to get that in, in, in a minute. But before we kind of get into Jeremiah, I want to set the context a little bit. Uh, because remember, we're trying to read the entire Bible cover to cover. It's a big task, but we don't want to skip over massive sections of Scripture without talking about it. Last week, we were in the Passover narrative really what we can consider the beginning of the history of the nation of Israel, right? God uh, liberates the people of Israel from the Egyptians. They wander out into the desert and the parting of the Red Sea, all that stuff. That's the beginning of Israel's history. But where we're coming into the story now, it's really the end of it, where they have kind of had a kingdom, a a massive rise to power, and then also a, a huge fall as well. They've kind of had like almost a thousand years of history between the Passover and now what's called the Babylonian exile, where they are led back into slavery, kind of starting back at square one. So the question is really, how did they get here? How did Israel go from from slavery and being free to a massive empire and then back into slavery? Well, this will be a bit of a teaching moment. There are three words Uh, Three words that all of us can remember and kind of keep in mind. And if you can keep these three words in mind or just kind of in your back pocket, you can really kind of summarize the entire nation of Israel's history. And those three words are these, the law, the land, and the leaders. The law, the land, and the leaders. 
These three words, they kind of summarize all of Israel's history because they summarize three critical gifts that God gave to the nation of Israel intending to set them up for massive success. But then Israel, in their kind of human and foolish and sinful fashion, they just take every single one of these gifts in one way or another. They just abuse them, misuse them, and break their faithfulness with God. And it's really miraculous because even as Israel continues to to break their faithfulness with God, God maintains his faithfulness with Israel, right? Because the very first gift that God gives to the nation of Israel to set them up for success, it's the law. We kind of know it as the Ten Commandments. God gives it to Moses on Mount Sinai. But before Moses can even deliver the law to the people, the people have already broken the most critical piece of the law, Right, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and he finds the people of Israel already worshiping a false god named Baal. And at this point, God, kind of the hero of the story, would be perfectly right and righteous in in condemning Israel outright, just wiping them off the map before they even get off the ground. But God doesn't do that. He's gracious and he's faithful, so faithful, in fact, that even while Israel disobeys the law, he leads them into the land. He leads them into the promised land. It's a bit of a long journey into the promised land, but he gets them there, right? Because as soon as Israel comes to the land... (laughs) They break faith with God by refusing to go into it. They see a couple of armies they don't want to fight. They see a couple of battles they don't want to have. So they wander away from the promised land and into the wilderness for 40 whole years. And in this rebellion, in this disobedience, again, God, as as kind of the hero of the story, will be perfectly right and righteous in, in judging all of Israel. But he doesn't. He's gracious And he's faithful, so faithful, in fact, that he walks with them every step of the way for those 40 years while they're wandering in the wilderness until finally they come back into the promised land, they fight all the battles, they win most of the battles, and God gives them the land that he promised them. And then as the people of Israel, they're kind of in the promised land, God gives them leaders to protect the land and uphold the law. He gives them judges first. That didn't work out super well. And then he gives them kings, which really did not work out at all, right? The the, the kings of Israel had this really nasty habit of breaking God's law and forgetting God's law and then just soiling the land altogether by bringing false gods into it. And you think at this point, okay, now the judgment is coming. Now the judgment is coming. Now this is the point where God is just going to smite Israel and take them back to square one. But he still doesn't do it yet. He's still faithful, So faithful that he sends prophets like Jeremiah to give the people of Israel a warning. That judgment is coming. And he says this, guys, if you repent, if you just turn back away from worshiping false gods, like if you come back to worship me, guys, judgment can be avoided. But if you don't do that, if you choose to go your own way and do your own thing, then judgment is coming. And that sounds a little bit harsh, but think about it this way. Judgment from God in this case, and really in most cases, it's It's not him extending wrath or extending anger. All judgment is, is him just taking the gifts that he's already given the nation of Israel back to himself. He looks at the nation of Israel and their disobedience. He says, you already rejected the law. That's gone. But if you continue to reject the law, then I will just take the land that I gave you and the leaders that I gave you and bring you back to nothing. Right, Jeremiah, he kind of extends this warning to the nation of Israel time and time and time again, and so do many other prophets. And you know what the nation of Israel does? Nothing. 
absolutely nothing. They keep wandering after false gods and into false worship. And so God is faithful. He's faithful to his word, but this time it was a word of warning, a word of judgment, and he takes the gifts back. And as God takes the land away from Israel, takes the leaders away from Israel, they are left in this space of exile where a new leader comes in. His name is King Nebuchadnezzar, leader of the Babylonian armies, and they just ransack all of the land that Israel had. They break into the city of Jerusalem, they tear down the walls, they rob the temple of all of its gold, and, and they lead the people off back into slavery. And then Jeremiah, the prophet who is, who is trying to stop all this from happening, he's just watching. He's just watching all of this darkness unfold, and that's the point in the story that we're stepping into this morning. That's the point in Israel's history, the very, very end of it, we're going to kind of step into and ask the honest question, where in the world do we fit inside of all of this? And here's how I kind of want to go about this. There are two key things that I want us to do. I want to walk really with Jeremiah, kind of step into his story for a moment and see some of the darkness that he sees see some of the darkness that surrounds him, some of the struggles that he's having and, and, and why he's having them, but that I also want us to see this beautiful moment that, that happens for Jeremiah where the light comes back on, where Jeremiah can see the light of God and the love of God and the goodness of God again, and I want us to just kind of walk through that by walking through the text together. So first thing we're going to do, we're going to look back at Lamentations, the beginning of chapter 3. This is Jeremiah in a pretty dark moment. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Even though Jeremiah was trying to prevent the wrath from happening, he's still sitting underneath it. God has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. And so what's happening for Jeremiah here is he's kind of telling to us or kind of showing us the story of of how he's feeling in the midst of exile. He says, well, first and foremost, it's hard. I've seen affliction, and the affliction is, is not fun. And also, it's just dark. It's hard to see anything besides the affliction, anything besides the pain. It just kind of captivates you. It takes your focus. It takes your attention. It takes your heart and your mind with you. There's just nothing you can see in the midst of the darkness. And it's strange because Jeremiah can certainly remember a time in his life where, like, the light of God was there. He can remember the heyday of Israel, but now he's just sitting at rock bottom. And the worst thing for Jeremiah, it wasn't wasn't really hardly ever his fault. He was the one who tried to stop all this darkness from happening. He's the one who warned the people of Israel, darkness is coming. And then the darkness came and he's like, now I got to sit in this too? The worst part of this for Jeremiah is he feels like he's just watching. He feels like he's just watching all this darkness surround not just him, but the whole nation of Israel. And like there's nothing he can do about it. He's just watching. He's just watching and watching and watching, and he can't get out of that space. And so if we're going to step into this story with Jeremiah, if we're going to sit with him in the midst of this darkness and kind of see what he sees, we kind of have to ask ourselves the honest question, what are you watching? I hope and pray that you are not watching the same thing that Jeremiah is watching, because honestly, it's kind of impossible Right, let, let's all agree for a moment that Jeremiah's got it a little bit rougher than we do. Like, a little bit rougher than we do. Like, his entire nation is physically falling apart. His friends, his family are physically being dragged off into slavery. He's watching the temple of the Lord just get robbed by pagans. And his heart is breaking. 
All right, so you and I, we're not watching what Jeremiah is watching, but you are watching something. There's something that often takes your attention, takes your time, your heart, and your mind, and just fills you with anxiety. What's that thing for you? Maybe you, maybe you're watching the clock. Maybe you're watching the clock at work, of all places. You've got a job that you started out loving. You, you went through four years of school, maybe six or eight years of school, so you could get this job. And when you started this job, you loved it. You were willing to put in the extra hours, the extra time, but, but something happened recently where the, where the job just changed. Maybe the boss has changed, or the coworkers changed, or the culture just changed, and now it's toxic. And every minute that you're there is just one minute too long. And you look at the clock, and you're just watching it go by. Wondering, how in the world did I get here? Wondering, what did I do to deserve this? And you're wondering, like, when is this darkness going to end? Maybe you're watching the clock. Maybe you're not watching the clock. Maybe you're watching the kids. And there's different times and different ways that you can watch the kids, right? Because when you start watching the kids, like, when they're really, really young, you have to, like, always be watching them. Right? Because if you don't watch the kids when you're really, really young, they start running around. And they start putting their hands in things they're not supposed to. They start bonking their heads on things they're not supposed to. They start putting things in their mouth that you're like, don't do that, dude. Like, like it's hard to watch the kids when they're really young. Like, like you just want to put your hands on them and be like, okay, like just stay here for two seconds. And, and, and it's hard because you feel like the moment you stop watching them, things are out of control. But then those same kids that you watched when they were young, they grow up and you start watching them again, but you watch them in a different way. You start watching them and the decisions that they make, the decisions that you no longer have any control over, and you start going like, like really, dude? Like you watch the, the kind of people that they hang out with, you're like, why in the world are you hanging out with them? Like, they're not good for you. You start watching the things that they're putting into their bodies, you're like, that's not good for you. You start watching the things that they're doing with their bodies, you're like, dude, that, that is so not good for you. But, but you as the parent, you're like, you don't want to be the helicopter parent, but, but inside your heart, all you want to do is just grab them by the shoulders and shake them and be like, dude, please stop it. Please. Maybe you're watching the kids. Maybe you're watching the clock. Oh, maybe this is, this is kind of the hardest one of all. Maybe you're watching the news. Maybe you're watching the news, and every time you watch the news, it's just hard to watch. Right, because you turn on the news, and what happens? You're just, just ambushed by negativity, ambushed by stories of tragedy happening, of injustice happening, and you think this world is so big, the problems are so big. Like, like what am I going to do sitting here in my chair? Like, what can I do about any of this? And it just kind of drains you on a daily basis. Maybe you're watching the kids. Maybe you're watching the clock. Maybe you're watching the news, but we are all watching something, and that's a hard feeling because when you feel like you're just watching, you feel like you can't do anything about it. But as we're watching, there's another question we need to ask. In the midst of the darkness that surrounds us, in the midst of the kind of the brokenness of this world that we really can't do anything about, how is it that we, as people of faith, how can we still have hope in the midst of darkness, how can we take our eyes off of the darkness and put them back on the light where they should be? How do we do that? I can tell you how Jeremiah does it. Jeremiah takes his eyes off the darkness, puts them back on the light in the words of a song. Let's look back at Lamentations chapter 3. This is a little bit further in the text. This is a beautiful, beautiful turn in Jeremiah's life where he just sees the goodness of God. 
Starting at verse 20, he's kind of lamenting still. He says, my soul constantly remembers this pain. There's darkness all around me. I can't do anything about it. And my soul, it is bowed down within me. He says, but this, even in the midst of this, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And you might hear those words and think to yourself like, oh yeah, like good job, Jeremiah. Like God is still faithful. And some of us, you hear those words and they just don't like cut any ice with you. Because you're like, okay, like I, I, I've heard that God is faithful all my life, but I, but I need to see some evidence of it. Like, where's the evidence of God's goodness? Where's the evidence of God's faithfulness? Well, I'll show you where the evidence is. It's in Psalm 136, the psalm that Jeremiah is quoting where he's reading this passage. Psalm 136, it's a song that's been put in Jeremiah's heart. It starts off like this. It says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. In other words, it never ceases. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. And you're still thinking, okay, like, where's the evidence? We're going to get there. But before we get there, let's just talk about this for a moment. Sometimes we have songs that we sing in church or things that we do in church that seem a little bit wild and wacky and confusing, things that we kind of repeat over and over that are a little bit traditional, and you're like, why are we still doing this? Like, why are we still playing the same hymns over and over and over? Here's why. It might feel like you're just kind of going through the motions. There's this like rhythm and routine that's kind of like a rut more so. But these motions are worth going through because these motions are actually what constitute our worship. The motions that you go through them, if you go through them, they can actually help fix your eyes on the right place. They can remind you of the truths of God's promises. They can remind you of God's story, of his faithfulness to you. And you can call to mind for yourself personally, not just generally, evidence of God's goodness. This is how Jeremiah does it. In verse 5, he goes on. He says, praise be to God who by his understanding made the heavens. Pause for just a moment. What's he doing here? He is calling to mind not just the general examples of God's goodness, but like a specific historical event where God showed his goodness to Jeremiah. Why? Because this is a part of his story, right? This is a callback to week one of this series, a callback to Genesis 1, the very beginning of the whole story, the whole thing. God says, pray, Jeremiah says, praise to God who by his understanding made the heavens. And then also this, verse 10, praise be to God who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. He's calling to mind again a specific historical event, the Passover that we covered last week, where God showed him physical evidence of his goodness, physical evidence of his faithfulness. And because Jeremiah can call to mind this evidence, he says, praise be to God. He's able to go from the spot where he is just watching all of the darkness around him, where he can actually start worshiping again. Not worshiping a God who just kind of exists in theory or general, but a God who really historically exists through specific examples of his faithfulness. And this is why Jeremiah can say, going back to verse 22 in Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's a song that he's heard forever, but it's also evidence that he's seen. He says, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And catch this. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. That verb is present tense, present continuous tense. In other words, Jeremiah is not saying, hey, I remember how good you used to be. Great was your faithfulness in the past. 
or great was your faithfulness to them. But, but this is the bold claim that he's making, saying, okay, you were faithful then, God. You are still faithful now. Great is your faithfulness, not just in general, but throughout history and to me personally. Jeremiah is able to take his eyes off of the darkness that's around him and back on the light where it's supposed to be because of the words of a song that God has put on his heart. And so if we're going to sit in this story with Jeremiah, if we're going to sit in this story appropriately and rightly, we need to ask ourselves the question, no longer what darkness are we watching, but what song are we singing? What song are you singing? What is the song that God has put on your heart? Maybe from where you were very young and maybe very even recently, but there is a song in your heart that God has placed there. And if we can call those songs to mind, call the goodness and the promises of God to mind and the specific examples of where he has been faithful to you, that is how we find hope in the midst of dark spaces. I don't know what those songs are for you. I don't know individually or personally what those songs are for you, but I know as a church there are a couple of songs that we like to use. A couple of songs that we even use this morning. The first one is called Promises. And what this song does, it's, it's beautiful. It helps us call to mind the history of God's faithfulness, not generally, but personally, the same way that Psalm 136 does it for Jeremiah. The very first verse of this song goes like this, God of Abraham. In other words, the God of history, the God of this story. You're the God of covenant of faithful promises, time and time again. Hear that, time and time again, I've seen the evidence. You have proven you do just what you say. Though the storms may come, though the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. In other words, in the moments where I feel like I'm just watching the world fall apart, when the storms are surrounding me, when the wind's blowing against me, I will remain steadfast. Why? Because I have seen your faithfulness before, and I know I'm going to see it again. He says, let my heart learn. Like, teach me, God, through this song, when you speak a word, it will come to pass. And I love these next two lines. These next two lines are a direct echo to us from the words of Jeremiah. It says, great is your faithfulness. Not to them, not in general, not throughout history, but great is your faithfulness to me. That's a song that's kind of been written on our hearts recently as a church, and, and if you haven't been around like a lot recently, you might not know it, but I know, I know that if you've been at church at all in like the past 50 or 100 or 200 years, there's another song that we sang this morning. There's another song that we sang that's probably written on your heart somewhere. It's How Great Thou Art. It says, when I think, in other words, when I call to mind and remember a specific historical event that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die for me, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, a, a time and a place in history, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And I love these next two lines. This is our response, having called to mind the goodness and the faithfulness of God. This is, then sings my soul. Not just my mouth or my words, but my soul. Then sings my soul, my savior, my hero, God to thee, how great thou art how great thou art. 
How great is your love for me? How great is your powerful for me? But, but more importantly, how great is your faithfulness to me? Because I've seen your faithfulness in the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ, he, he stepped into this story. He didn't keep himself removed from the whole story and all the consequences of it. No, he, he saw the cries and the hurt of humanity, and he stepped into that story with us. He didn't leave us behind or forsake us. He, he fulfilled his promises. He fulfilled the law and the prophets perfectly, and he stepped in to be the hero when all that we were were the villains. He took our sin, took our brokenness, and nailed it on a cross. Died a death that we deserved to die. So that we could see, so that we could look back and see a, a real historical event of God showing his faithfulness, showing his goodness, calling us out of the darkness into his marvelous light so that we now too can move from watching into worshiping. Where we can sit back, the beggars that we are, and just kind of watch God at work for us. We know there's no work that we could do to kind of get there on our own, but praise be to God that he did the work for us. That's the story that the whole scriptures tell from cover to cover is the story of God consistently intervening, consistently being faithful, consistently fulfilling his promises and stepping into the darkness for our sake. And here's why that's so important. The alternative is, is, is really not fun. If Jesus didn't step into my story and yours, if Jesus did not step into our story, the reality of it, guys, is we're still just watching. We're still just watching the darkness around us, and there really isn't anything at the end of the day that we can do about it. But because he did, because Jesus stepped into your story and into mine, we can say with confidence, great God is your faithfulness. We can have hope and a future and look to him to continue to be in our story, to continue to work with us the same way that he always has. No matter what storms may come, no matter what winds kind of blow against us, we can trust and have confidence that God is right here with us. And the way we do that is with worship. Worship is the place where we watch, where we fix our eyes on God and just watch him work. That is the story that we step into every Sunday morning that we're here. That is the story that defines us, that gives us value, identity, and purpose. And that's a story where the ending is just beautiful. Where it's God calling us into his family, into his arms, and there is no better ending to your story or mine that we could possibly imagine. That's what happens when we step into the story of God, or really what happens when he steps into our story for us. Amen. Would you stand and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story that you've given us. We thank you so much for your love, for your passion, for, for dying the death that we deserve to die. God, I pray that we can call this to mind more often. I pray that we can worship you rightly, that we could see ourselves as the beggars that we are and just kind of call out to you. In the midst of dark spaces, when we feel alone, like there's nothing we can do, God, we know there's something you can do and something that you have done for us. We can see it, we can remember it, God, and we love you for it. We pray that as we leave this place, that our worship would kind of inhabit our souls, that we wouldn't just sing, but that we would serve. 
that we would love our neighbors the way that you have loved us. God, that you would create in us faith and faithful hearts, modeled and imaged after your great faithfulness to us. In your name we pray. Amen.